0: Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Bad Apple. I'm Riley. And I'm Helen. And this is episode 10. Ooh. I can't believe we are 10 episodes in already. Well, not yet. We have nine. This is our 10th. Right. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for that technicality, <laughs> Sorry, Helen. <laughs> anyway, I can't believe that we are recording our 10th episode mm. and
1: that we've come this far. That means people have listened to... At least four hours of us blabbing if they've listened to every episode. Mm. And
0: beyond that four hours, there is much more hours that we have cut of us blabbing. So you count yourselves lucky. Mm. It also means we've had 10 weeks of hype songs. And today's hype song was Should I Stay or Should I Go by The Clash, a classic 80s hit. (laughs) We listened to that because Helen and I have been watching Stranger Things, which... We apparently slept on for four whole years. Don't know why we did that. But if you haven't watched it, I we would highly recommend it. Mm, it's good. It is good. Anyway, Helen actually commissioned me to research this case. I had never really heard of it. I was kind of like indifferent. And she was like, no, no, we have to do it. We have to do it. And I was like, all right, fine. So I did it. And now I'm truly
1: down the rabbit hole. <laughs> it is A big rabbit hole, you could fall down. When I heard of the case, I was—I always wanted to do a family annihilator case. I think they're so fascinating and great to talk about. But when I found out that one happened in New Zealand, I was like, what? I just heard things like that don't happen there. But New Zealand consistently surprises me every Mm -hmm. week. But this one is potentially a family annihilator case because I guess... In the eyes of the law, it has been solved.
0: Yeah, it's not There's one. been a
1: verdict declared. But I guess it's up to your interpretation. Not to dismiss the eyes of the law. I am, though. Mm. You can come up with your own okay. interpretation of events, because we don't know what's really what really happened. Or even who the family annihilator was. So today, we're going to be talking about the Bain family murders.
0: Okay, hold they're, they're all dead. What's the matter? They're all dead. Oh, I came home and they're all dead.
1: Whereabouts, are you? Um, um every street or oh, every street. Sixty five every street.
0: When twenty two year old David Bain woke up at his usual time to start his newspaper run on the twentieth of June nineteen ninety four, nothing was out of the ordinary in his family home. David left with the dog at 5.45am to drop off the papers. He liked to time himself and see how quickly he could deliver them all, jogging most of the way. This particular morning, he was quite fast, and David arrived back home in under an hour, around 6.43am. He noticed his mother's bedroom light was on, but thought nothing of it and went to his room to take his shoes off and put his Walkman and paper bag away. Despite it still being dark, David didn't turn his bedroom light on, all the light in the downstairs bathroom when he went to wash off the black paper ink and start a load of washing. If he had, he may have noticed that something wasn't right. After turning on the washing machine, David went back up to his room, finally turning on the light. This is when he noticed that his rifle was missing and his trigger lock was on the floor. At this point, David becomes worried. He rushes to his mother's room, where he finds her shot dead. He hears his sister, Laniette, making gurgling noises across the hall and then visits the rooms of his three siblings, all of whom have been killed. He finally arrives in the lounge, where his father, Robin, lay dead with a single gunshot wound to his head, with David's rifle resting next to him. David called 111, telling the operator, They're all dead, they're
1: all dead. The account we've just told you is David Bain's version of events from the morning of June 20th, 1994. When the police arrive at the Bain house, the scene is confronting. Five family members are dead and the only surviving member is telling them he wasn't there when it happened. The evidence they find, however, tells a different story. Before we go into that though, let's take a look at the Bain family. Robin Bain and Margaret Cullen married in Dunedin in 1969. Their first child, David, was born three years later in 1972. After this, the Bain family settled in Papua New Guinea, where they had three more children – Aroa, Laniette and Stephen. Robin and Margaret both worked as missionaries in schools. They lived in Papua New Guinea until 1988 when they returned to New Zealand, eventually settling in Andersons Bay, Dunedin. They lived at 65 Every Street. Their house was old and semi-derelict. When they surveyed the crime scene, which was the house, which happened six years after they had moved in, each room was filled with the family's belongings in stages of half unpacked boxes, stuff everywhere. There truly was just shit everywhere. Shitstorm.
0: Marie Kondo would have had a field day. It looked
1: truly unlivable. Yeah. yeah. I don't understand. For a family that big as well, for the house to still be like that. Yeah. Anyway. Robin found a job as the principal of Tyree Beach Primary School, but Margaret didn't return to work. She started taking an interest in mystical and supernatural things. Think crystals, tarot cards, astrology, that kind of stuff. Okay, Margaret. (laughs) Yeah, okay.
0: Those are legitimate interests.
1: Yeah. Fast forward to 1994, though, and Margaret and Robin are estranged.
0: Who saw that coming? (laughs) Not me.
1: Maybe it was in the stars. (laughs) Yeah.
0: She worked out that they weren't compatible at all. Yeah. She put their birth charts into that. Okay, Riz. Calculator.
1: Yeah. In fact, the whole family dynamic was very fractured. Initially, Robin was sleeping in the back of his van at the school, but he eventually set up some accommodation in the schoolhouse. He stayed at the school three nights a week, but came back to the Every Street House on weekends. He didn't sleep in the house. He slept in a caravan that was parked in the backyard. David was a 22-year-old student studying music and classics at the University of Otago and had a part-time job as a paperboy. I thought that was something that you did when you were 12.
0: Yeah, look, I wasn't going to knock his hustle as a paperboy, but that is... I feel like maybe... Did he have some other skills at this point that he could have used? Maybe, maybe he just loved doing the papers I don't know yeah
1: exercise maybe yeah it is kind of a it's not a common thing for 22 year olds to be doing no maybe in the 90s maybe not though maybe maybe in New Zealand (laughs) yeah in the 90s you still had to run around you didn't have cars yet (laughs) we're still fighting mowers (laughs) he was the oldest of four siblings his sister Arua was 19 and attended a teacher's training college his other sister Laniette was 18 and lived away from home but had returned for the weekend, and the youngest sibling, Stephen, was 14 and was still at school.
0: So when the police arrive at the home, it initially looks like the father, Robin, has committed a murder-suicide, which fits with David's version of events. They found a typed note on the computer which read, Sorry, you are the only one who deserved to stay. It also appeared that there had been a struggle with Stephen, and there were signs he had been strangled. However, the evidence quickly takes a turn, and suspicion starts to fall on David. So are we looking at Robin and a potential murder-suicide, or are we dealing with David, a potential family annihilator trying to cover his tracks? In the laundry, they find the clothes in the washing machine, which was started by David, including a blood-stained green jersey, which matched some fibres underneath Stephen's fingernails, and David's gondolier's sweatshirt which had been sponged in an attempt to get a blood stain out. They also found blood on top of the washing powder box and in the basin.
1: What are the gondoliers? A sports team? I think they must
0: be a sports team.
1: What's a gondolier?
0: Like those people in Venice that have the big sticks on the boats and boat you around. Oh,
1: yeah. Yeah.
0: So, yeah, it's like a sports team shirt. In David's room, they found over 1,000 rounds of ammunition, and the trigger lock on the floor of his room. He had two keys for this lock, one in a jar on his desk, and another on a string that had been left in a jacket in Robin's caravan. They found a pair of broken glasses, with the left lens missing. This left lens was later found in Stephen's room. David was also wearing blood-stained socks when police arrived. In the lounge room, they found David's 22 caliber Winchester rifle, fitted with a silencer, aimed at Robin. They found the magazine resting on its narrow edge. David's bloody fingerprints were found on the rifle. Robin had specks of blood on his hands and track pants, but no substantial blood on his clothes. Throughout the rest of the house, they found blood smears, including a smear on Stephen's doorframe. They also found bloody sock prints throughout the house and David's opera gloves covered in blood underneath Stephen's bed. There was the message on the computer which had been turned on at 6.44 a.m. And there was witness accounts seeing David along his paper run, including at the corner of Every Street at 6.40, approximately two to three minutes from his house. There was some criticism about how the police handled some of this evidence. For example, they found the clothes in the washing machine, which had
1: just finished. So what did they do? Went and hung them out. (laughs) That's a New Zealand police mood. More than I do for my own laundry. You know, I gotta spin that stuff. <laughs> they didn't yeah. spin it. I would spin it. I like, don't know how long the stuff was. It probably already here
0: spun. For. Right. Oh, you mean like re rinse it? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, right. Maybe it was clearly freshly washed. Mm-hmm. Anyway, how helpful of them.
1: I guess so. But Let's that's make sure not. they
0: have clean clothes, all these dead people.
1: But is that not tampering with evidence? <laughs> yes, it
0: is. That's why the issue, that's why there's an issue. Damn. They would probably trying to do the right thing. A small speck of blood on Robin's fingernail was never tested for DNA, so we don't know whose blood it was. They found the left lens of the broken glasses in Stephen's room four days later. They said that it was in plain sight, but there's actually like another account that said it was hidden under a bunch of stuff and it was dusty, so it might have been there a while.
1: But dust really collects, and so... I don't know if that accounts for anything. We leave something in our house for two minutes and it's dusty.
0: Yeah, and this house was dusty, crusty, musty. Busty ass. This was a dusty house. Yeah. So who knows?
1: Despite these mistakes made by the police, there was enough evidence to charge David with the murders of his five family members. As well as all this evidence, the police noticed that David had a few fresh injuries, including bruising on his forehead around his eyes, some scrapes and bruises along his knuckles, and a scratch on his knee. The prosecution run the argument that David was the killer. He woke up at 5am, took his rifle from the closet and removed the trigger lock, then shot and killed his mother and three siblings. He then placed his bloody clothes in the washing machine before going on his paper run, arriving home at 6.42 or 6.43. He then turned the computer on at 6.44 and either then or sometime later typed the fake suicide note. David then hid behind the green curtains in the lounge room and waited for his father to come in around 7am to pray as was his regular practice and then shot him in the head. He arranged the gun and magazine to make it look like a suicide and called emergency services acting really distressed. Ultimately, the jury affirmed the prosecution's version of events convicting David on five counts of murder after just nine hours' deliberation. The case turned mainly on three crucial bits of evidence. Firstly, the blood on top of the washing machine powder container and the blood-stained clothes in the machine. He says he turned the washing machine on before finding his family members, so how did the blood get onto the box? He also says that he had sorted out his clothes and put them into the washing machine before finding them, so how did they get blood on them? Secondly, Stephen's injuries, David's injuries, the broken glasses, and the fibres under Stephen's fingernails. All these things really seem to point to the fact that it was David who had the fight with Stephen. They said that the glasses found in David's room were his and that they had been broken during the struggle with Stephen. And thirdly, lack of evidence that it was Robin. Robin didn't have anyone else's blood on his clothes and had no blood on his socks and shoes. The murders were bloody and he would have had blood on him. The killer had left blood all through the house, so unless he got changed and then committed suicide, Robin's fingerprints were also not on the gun and there was no gunpowder on his hands.
0: At trial, David sticks with his version of events and is adamant that he's innocent. That he came home from his paper run and his whole family had been murdered, seemingly by his father Robin, who had then committed suicide. There are still some things that really don't add up. Firstly, the prosecution didn't really present a solid motive for why David would want to kill his entire family, and maybe you don't need one, maybe he just was a bit crazy, but it seems important to at least establish that. Secondly, there's this glaring possibility that this timeline still allows for Robin or someone else to be the killer. I suppose he could have killed everyone, switched the computer on when he heard David arrive home, write the message... And then kill himself in the next room while David was washing his hands and doing the laundry. Maybe he did get completely changed out of his bloody clothes because he wasn't planning on committing suicide and at some point between committing the murders and David getting home, he had decided to do it. Thirdly, there was also some evidence from a witness, Dean Cottle, which the trial judge had refused to admit, which does seem to give Robin a motive for the murders. This is where the basis for the first appeal comes from in 1996, a year after David's conviction.
1: So, there was this evidence from Dean Cottle, who was friends with Larniette, that she had told him that Robin had been sexually assaulting her. Dean says he met Laniette ten months earlier and they had become friends. Hmm, there was some evidence that they were more than friends. Yeah, but they're, what, 19?
0: There was some evidence that he had potentially been, I guess what we would call, in modern terms as like a sugar daddy relationship kind of thing how old
1: is dean i don't
0: know how old dean is but he had like bought her things he was like paying for her mobile phone plan and like there was some evidence that she would have sex with him to ensure that she was able to keep all these things i see
1: lani had told him that her father had started assaulting her when they lived in papua new guinea she said that she had been working as a prostitute and that her father had been having sex with her consistently for the past year this was one of the reasons she was moving out of home, but that her mother had been asking her why she was moving and she hadn't been able to tell her. On Friday the 17th, three days before the killings, Lani had told Dean that she was going to go home for the weekend and tell her parents everything, put a stop to it, and move out and get her fresh start. So, this evidence is pretty incriminating for Robin, right? But it runs into some admissibility issues.
0: I personally am a stan of admissibility rules, and what evidence you can and can't let in during a trial. I think that they're there for a reason. And it's very important, in my opinion, to protect the presumption of innocence and protect your right to a fair trial. Imagine if anyone could just get up and say whatever they wanted. Mm. You know? We need rules.
1: The trial judge said that while it was hearsay, which means someone saying that someone had said something,
0: right? Yeah. Hearsay is like when you tell the court something that someone else has told you or... Even secondhand, you tell the court that some you tell the court something that someone has heard from someone else. Yeah.
1: I don't wanna heat said she said <laughs> <laughs> something
0: like that. That's hearsay.
1: <laughs> yeah. So while it was hearsay, it was admissible for the purpose of building evidence that Robin had a motive to kill her. But that wasn't really the issue anyway. The evidence was ultimately unreliable. Dean didn't turn up to court initially, but when he did, the judge found him to be in a state of confusion and decided to not allow questioning to continue and ruled his evidence as inadmissible. The question on appeal was whether this evidence should have been admitted at trial and whether the fact that it wasn't made a difference. The court kind of sidestepped the issue. (laughs) As usual. But ultimately said that the judge was right to exclude it and the appeal was denied.
0: I agree here. I think that if the court isn't 100% satisfied about the reliability of a witness or evidence that comes in, that they should exclude it. Back to my, I'm just such a stan of, of the admissibility rules.
1: Give her a clerkship. P- she someone. clearly
0: knows. <clears throat> <clears throat> I personally, <laughs> even though this appeal doesn't go his way, David doesn't give up. He truly tries every trick in the book. We'll run you through the rest of these appeals. From May to November of 1997, an investigation into the police handling of the case begins following claims published by ex-All Black Joe Karam in his book, David and Goliath. Great original title, Joe. And also, why is everyone in New Zealand like linked to an All Black? Why are the All Blacks always popping up? Oh, Do you know any All Blacks? I wish. Personally, no, no, no. I reckon... Through some hearsay. (laughs) Someone you know knows one, I reckon. You just start making uh, those links.
1: I do. Everyone's an all-black at some point resident in New Zealand. Did you know that?
0: No. I Uh, guess there is only like 20 people in New Zealand. Personally,
1: I play rugby.
0: Oh. (laughs) That's why I can tackle so good. (laughs) I never knew that about you. Following this investigation, with Joe's help, David applies to the Governor-General, for the exercise of the Royal Prerogative of Mercy in May 1998. From what I understood when this happens, it basically gives the Governor-General power to ask the Court of Appeal whether or not they think particular issues would be grounds for a future appeal. So the Court is just advising them. They're not deciding on anything. I don't think we have this in Australia so I might be a bit off on that.
1: Where is the Royal Prerogative? Is that a...
0: What is that? It's not, it's not a place. Oh. It's a power. It's a... P- <laughs> Sorry, I didn't realise you just find justice so funny, Helen.
1: <laughs> I find this whole thing hilarious. But, so, the Governor General is a person? Yes. One person? Yes. And then the Royal Prerogative of Mercy is a concept. Is a,
0: a power that the Governor General can exercise. It's a... Okay. It's yes, abstract. I guess it's a concept,
1: yeah. And the Court of Appeal is a place.
0: Well, yeah, I guess so.
1: It's physically a place. We not only have who, where... And the abstract what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've got everything going on here. Hope you're all paying attention because... It's really hard to follow We're getting along. schooled. <laughs> <laughs> all right.
0: Anyway, in December 2000, the Governor-General asks the Court of Appeal six questions as part of this prerogative of mercy. The first four were, was the computer turned on at a time earlier than 6.44am on the 20th of June or, at the very least, is there a reasonable possibility that the computer could have been turned on at a time earlier than 6.44? Did the lens that was found in Stephen Bain's room get there at a time or in a way that was unrelated to the murders, or, at the very least, is there a reasonable possibility that this could have been so? Were David's positive fingerprint marks made in blood that were found on the rifle used to commit the murders, put there at some time before the murders, or, at the very least, Is there a reasonable possibility that this could have been so? And lastly, was the submission made by the Crown Solicitor in the Crown's closing address to the jury at David's trial that Only one person could have heard Larniette gurgling, that person is the murderer. Wrong or misleading? The following two questions related to whether there was enough evidence available to have led the jury to return a different verdict, and whether this gives rise to the possibility that there had been a miscarriage of justice, which is enough to question the conviction of David. It took the Court of Appeal two years to advise the Governor-General on these questions, and they ultimately say, yes, there is enough evidence, and that the failure of this to be presented in the trial may have been a miscarriage of justice. The Governor-General then says, can you hear this appeal? And they say, sure. Great. So that leads us on to the second appeal. So now we're appealing again. So David's back in the Court of Appeal another year later, in December 2003, this is once again fruitless, and the appeal is dismissed. They said that any reasonable jury would have been able to see that the case against David was proved beyond a reasonable doubt for three main reasons. One, only David knew where the key was for the trigger lock. Two, David's fingerprints on the rifle and the blood spatter indicate that the person who shot the gun when it was spattered was David. And three, that the magazine on its narrow edge couldn't have gotten there organically and must have been placed there by David. They said that there hadn't been a miscarriage of justice and that the jury was open to the conclusion that David was guilty on the evidence that was before them.
1: What? That third point is just arguing with the laws of the universe. Physics. Yeah, it is a bit. No way. No way it could have landed on its narrow edge. I'll tell you, shit has fallen and landed on weirder angles in my time of being Yeah. uh, What is it? a cartridge, the magazine being Mm. on the narrow edge. What? Yeah. Okay. And firstly, how do they know that only David knew where the key was for the trigger lock?
0: Yeah, I think he told them that. But I guess maybe he was wrong. Why would he tell them that, though? That would be condemning. Only
1: I know where the key to the trigger lock was. I don't know. But they knew somehow that only he knew where it was. Strange. Yeah. Strange three points, but fine. Didn't work. And that's what David thinks, because once again, David is back. He goes to the highest court in the Commonwealth, the Privy Council.
0: I found it very interesting that he was able to go to the Privy Council in New Zealand. I don't really know about this, so if all you New Zealand lawyers could um, let me know how this made it to the Privy Council, because we cut ourselves off from the Privy Council
1: ages ago. For those of you who don't know, the Privy Council seemed to be this big dick court in London. (laughs) Yeah, they're the the biggest dicks in the land. Right. In all the land. Maybe they have a quota. They're like, oh, we need, we need one case from New Zealand every year. And New Zealand was like, um, oh. They hadn't heard from New Zealand in yeah. like 20 years. They were like, are you guys are you doing okay? Do you have anything you want us to decide? Yeah. Anyway, David had gotten himself a good team headed by Michael Reed QC, which means... Queen's Council. Right, he's a cool guy. Mm-hmm. And they're off to London to present their case to the Privy Council. The first breakthrough came in June 2006 when the Privy Council agreed to hear the appeal. So the appeal begins in 2007. Bain's team presented nine main arguments based in existing or new evidence challenging the decision of the New Zealand courts up until this point. These nine points were 1. Robin's mental state and motive. There was new evidence from his teaching colleagues about concerns they had for Robin's mental state at the time of the killings. There were also new witnesses that were able to confirm that what Dean Cottle had originally said that Laniette had told him about Robin sexually abusing her was true. Number two, the bloody sock prints. The prints measured 280 millimeters. Now Robin's feet were 270 millimeters and David's were 300 millimeters. So too big to make the prints? You know what they say. Big feet,
0: big socks. Huge shoes.
1: Yeah, but then I, I pitched this idea to Riz and she was like, I guess you could walk around like you know with like your toes scrunched up, you know, <laughs> like
0: when you're walking on something you're trying not to get your feet wet.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I don't know about that. I Don't know. I did a very
0: vivid demonstration in the kitchen. Should have hired her on the team. Yeah, I would have done a reenactment.
1: Thirdly, the computer switch on time. There was new evidence that the switch on time of 6.44 may not have been completely accurate. Number four, the time that David got home from the paper run. There was evidence that hadn't been presented about a witness who saw someone matching David's description at 6.45 outside the family home, which Goes against the computer being turned on at 624. I guess. If that was even when it was turned on. Or if that (laughs) was
0: when it was turned on, it wasn't him because he was still outside. Right.
1: Number five, the owner of the broken glasses. The optometrist who initially said he had prescribed David similar glasses had changed his opinion. But this wasn't correctly conveyed to the jury at trial. Number six, the missing lens. There was a possibility that the lens had been there before the struggle. It was dusty and there was no human DNA found on it. The jury had been misled about this. Number 7. David's bloody fingerprints on the rifle. There was new evidence that suggested these may have been present before the murders and may have been from shooting possums or rabbits. Number 8. Larniette's gurgling noises. The jury was wrongly led to believe that David's statement that he had heard Larniette gurgling meant that he was the murderer, as only the killer could have heard these noises. But there is significant expert evidence about post-mortem gurgling, which the jury was able to consider.
0: Ugh. Yeah, that's a bit of a topic, isn't it?
1: So on this evidence, and I guess for point nine, point nine is see all of above. <laughs> you know yeah, that option point nine in the quiz. <laughs> is
0: all of the above. Is all of the above enough to decide that there had been a miscarriage of justice, that the jury had been misled in David's original trial?
1: Yeah. So with all of this, the Privy Council decide to quash David's murder convictions and order that he be retried for them. Basically, they decided that the original jury had been misled about evidence or hadn't been presented with an accurate representation of the facts. Back in New Zealand, David was released on bail in May 2007 pending a retrial of his convictions. He had served 12 years of his minimum 16-year sentence. This retrial began in March 2009. It lasted for three months and the defence now had some pretty solid arguments that they'd tested in the Privy Council. And these arguments seemed to be convincing. After deliberating for less than a day, the jury returned a non-guilty verdict on all five counts in June 2009, 15 years after the murders had taken place.
0: After David's not-guilty verdict, his barrister, Michael Reid, said that, the jury were completely convinced that David hadn't done it. This also led the press to the conclusion that it must have been Robin. But this isn't really it. One of the jurors who sat on the retrial penned an open letter about the case. It read, As a member of David Bain's retrial jury, I am angered by the misinterpretation of our not guilty verdict by the public, and particularly by the media. In an article in the New Zealand Herald shortly after the retrial verdict last June, Paul Holmes wrote, David Bain is innocent. Robin Bain came in from his caravan that cold Monday morning and killed four sleeping members of his family, then himself. This type of conclusion has been repeated many times in the year since the trial finished. Even in Friday's press article about an upcoming play about the murder case, Katie Chapman states that Bain's defence successfully argued that Robin was the killer. I take exception to this flawed characterization of David Bain's not guilty verdict. As a jury, we did not necessarily find David innocent or Robin guilty. Our task was to determine if David Bain's guilt was proved beyond reasonable doubt, a very high threshold. Anyone who reads from our verdict that Robin Bain is guilty is just plain wrong. Robin Bain was not on trial. David was. So that's the piping hot judicial tea. So where is David now? After his acquittal, Bain went on a Euro trip paid for by his supporters. Nice. That's what I'd be doing too. He also managed to get a compensation settlement from the New Zealand government of $925,000. By 2012, five years after his release, he began working for an engineering firm and got engaged to his girlfriend, Elizabeth Davies, a Christchurch primary school teacher. Two years later, in January 2014, they were married, and in December of that year, they had a baby. Waste no time, I say. Yeah. He's lost enough time. Get cracking. In May 2017, he changed his name to William Davies, taking his wife's surname, Queen, Queen of Feminism. They had been planning to move to Australia and start a new life, but I'm not sure if they have yet. This was in 2017. Mm-hmm. As we all know, uh, you know, if they delayed that by a couple of years, shit's hit the fan now. So don't know. I think they're still in New Zealand, but they're living a very, very private life. So did he or did he not do it? Public opinion polls taken in New Zealand around the time of the compensation claim indicate that the majority of New Zealanders think that Baines should have received compensation from the government for his wrongful imprisonment, implying that they think he's innocent. In my opinion, I'm undecided on whether he did it, but I am convinced that the prosecution just didn't put up a good enough case. They say they saw Baines' team gathering all this new evidence and all these experts, and what do they do? Not enough.
1: Definitely still think there are a lot of plot points here that still don't make sense. Like the washing machine. Why did we never talk about that again? <laughs> you know?
0: As in like, how did the bloody clothes get in the washing machine? Yeah,
1: all of that. The body, the blood on the um, the powder. Yeah. Just all bits of that.
0: I guess the... What I sort of put it down to is that if Robin did do it, he wasn't originally planning on committing suicide. And that's something that he decided on later because mm. that I think that's that explains a lot of the like idiosyncrasies in why nothing really adds up. Mm-hmm. And I think potentially like maybe he did, like maybe he woke up, went into the house, just chucked on some random clothes that he found, did it, left the clothes somewhere. Then David comes home, picks up the clothes which have blood on them, puts them in the washing machine, reaches for the washing powder. That now has blood on it. Washes his hands in the sink. That now has blood on it. Meanwhile, his dad's upstairs. He's realized, oh, like, this isn't what I wanted. What am I going to tell David? What he's panicking. He then decides to commit suicide, even though he's gotten changed now.
1: Types the note first.
0: Types the note when he hears David come home. Types the note, goes into
1: the next room. Shoots himself. Shoots himself. Okay, but a silencer isn't that silent, right? There's still like mm. a shoo sound. Yeah. It's not like I feel like David would have heard that maybe I don't know but yeah that makes she's cracked it she's blown it wide open yeah they should have had me on the on the team (laughs) I I would have got it at the first appeal and yeah it really seems like it wouldn't make sense if like if Robin did it to make sure like David's the only one who gets away like gets away alive but Mm. then to frame him you
0: know yeah it's a seemingly maybe an accidental framing that
1: would suck if it was. Yeah. And I guess with family annihilators, normally it seems like once they've annihilated, done their, you know, all that stuff, they, once they're found, they don't really, I guess, argue as strongly as <laughs> David has that they're innocent. I've found in other cases, maybe. Mm. Like they kind of accept it.
0: David really, like, pursued it for 15 years. Mm. That would have worn out a lot of people. Yeah. Also, like, and, like, he only had a few years left.
1: Yeah. Like,
0: if he truly...
1: But that's the minimum sentence, though. Yeah, I guess so. They might
0: have extended it. But I feel like he was doing pretty well in prison. Mm -hmm. So I don't really know. But, like, if you could see the end of the tunnel and you were like, I'm guilty, like, why would you go through this whole thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, the cost of the case to the New Zealand government was almost $7 million. Yeah. And the retrial cost more than 4 million. Yeah, but he's not paying. He's it. not paying it, but like I feel like you would We sh- are. <laughs> you the taxpayer. <laughs> I've never paid tax in New
1: Zealand ever. I pay tax here though.
0: Um You obviously weren't part of these public opinion polls either, Helen.
1: I never am. They never ask you. Wish they'd ask me. But it's you know, it's not even um not even mandatory to vote there. Yeah. So why do I What is that about? So public voting on these uh trial cases would be even less mandatory i don't even know where they're held
0: not i think it's like (laughs) on the daily mail website yeah something (laughs) like that something like that my heart kind of says he's not guilty my head kind of says maybe he is but there was just not enough evidence there wasn't a good enough case what do Mm. you think
1: no i agree oh it's really hard to say i don't know (laughs) quite honestly Mm. at all but I would like someone to explain to me the washing machine. Because, you know, if I come home from a paper round and I'm um, loading the washing machine mm. and I'm putting the powder in and suddenly my hands are wet, I'm like, oh, God. Yeah, maybe it, maybe it wet. wasn't wet. You said, but, like, if he did, like, he would have right. touched the blood and spread it and everywhere. Spread it. Maybe it was, you know how blood gets, like, thick? No. No, I don't know that. I haven't bled profusely in my life ever. Not really. Anyway, I guess this is partly solved partly
0: unsolved question mark because even if it's even if we know it wasn't david that part might be solved then who who was it was it robin or was it a third party oh yeah i kind of am open to that possibility as well of it being like someone external
1: Mm Mhm. someone very good though very yeah but I guess it's up to you guys to make up your own mind or don't make it up. I haven't made my mind up. I don't think I ever will about this case.
0: Hmm. That's all we have for you on this case. We hope you enjoyed
1: listening. Mm-hmm. And there's heaps of material on this case on the internet. So many pictures. Yes, just a warning. Warning. Graphic. They are graphic, but, but there are pictures of David now. And yep. And...
0: He has huge ears. <laughs> Sorry. Just had to say it. I thought we could go this whole case without you mentioning his ears. They're massive. So he must have heard the gunshot
1: <laughs> if it was in the house. Oh, go have a look-see if you want. Very interesting. Yeah. Thanks for joining us this week. We will see you next week. Bye. Bye.